And now, from beyond our dimension, this is the Jeff Mara Podcast. Here's Jeff. My guest is Kelvin Chen, who almost drowned and was able to control his consciousness and save his life. And today we're going to learn how he did it. Kelvin, thank you for joining us and welcome. Great to be here with you, Jeff. All right, Kelvin, I think we need some backstory first before we get into how you almost drowned. So can we start with that? Sure. So um, first of all, that drowning event happened in uh, 1972. I was 21 years old. Before that, I had learned to meditate when I was 19 years old. So when that event happened to me, when I almost drowned in the very, very deep, deep ocean, um, I'd already been meditating for two years. So why did I learn to meditate? I learned to meditate because I was really stressed out. I was highly anxious. I didn't know what else to do. And that's why I learned to meditate. I didn't learn for spiritual reasons or anything like that. I didn't really know about the mind other than psychologically a little bit about the mind that from that perspective, I, I, I was pre-med at the time. I was very science oriented, um, but I learned to meditate. And through the meditation, I started experiencing naturally, as many of your folks in the audience probably have experienced, you start experiencing the separation of mind and body, the, the distinction, the difference between that the, there is a mind, consciousness, soul, whatever you want to call it. I call it mind and body, physical, biological body. And they're not the same. They influence each other. And we know that, but they're distinct. And so I'd experienced what you could call out-of-body experiences fairly regularly over that couple of years. And in a nutshell, we can get into the experience of my drown, almost drowning in a second, but in a nutshell, that's what saved my life. All right, let me stop you for one second. What type of meditation were you doing? Ah, okay. So what happened when I was at Dartmouth College at the time, I was, a, I was a beginning my sophomore year. And I literally thought I was so stressed out, I thought I was going to flunk out. And so I was walking down the campus in the middle of the campus, we call it the, the big green, the campus green, big, huge area. And um, some guy, I can't remember who it was, one of some guys, hey, Kel, uh, this some guru is going to be in uh, dorm room number, you know, chote six, you know, with, you know, two, 230, whatever, uh, Wednesday at 8 p.m. You go check them out. Blah, blah, blah. So I went and went and checked it. I probably did about three or four of those kind of they back then it was 1970. And um, either the guru or a guru's students were traveling around the country. And, and and doing these little mini lectures and maybe teaching some people to meditate. So I went around to three or four of those, and some of them were a little bit too Indian-ish for me. I didn't want to shave my head, and I shaved my head now. But I did, at that, that time, I had hair down to here, a <laughs> head of hair. I didn't want to shave my head, you know, start wearing robes and beads and all this stuff. And um, so I, you know, shied away from those. And I happened to walk in an auditorium, and there's this guy sitting there talking about meditation, with a suit and a tie and he looked like a regular guy. And he started talking about research about meditation. So as I said, I was pre-med, I was into science at the time and so forth. And uh, I said, research on meditation, what? And so he started talking about the cortisol levels going down, the, you know, uh, balancing the brain chemistry, they're doing, taking blood samples. They had just started research. Uh, Herbert Benson, people probably have heard his name, 
uh, Boston cardiologist was just starting to do the very first uh, research studies on any form of any kind of meditation in 1970. And uh, several months later, after I learned to meditate, I actually was part of that study as well. Uh, it was published in the Journal of American Medical Association, Scientific American Magazine, and so forth, 71, 72. Um, but that caught my attention. So I learned transcendental meditation from that teacher at the time. So I fast forward just quick one sentence summary. Um, I became a TM teacher, studied personally with Maharishi in 1971, prior to my NDE, and then in 73, again, became a TM teacher, uh, became an international leader in his organization for about 10 years. They went off in a different direction. So I just, I said, see you later, good luck and so forth. And uh, we parted ways. But for 10 years, I was, um, you know, met with him personally in his room many times. He's the guy, for those people who don't know who Maharishi was, he, he's the guy who is known to, to have taught the Beatles to meditate in 1967, et cetera, and all that. Have you ever been out to the university in Iowa? I have been, yeah. That was the last thing he asked me to do in 1978 was to go there and organize a teacher training uh, to train TM teachers, Chinese-American TM teachers, and take them to China, Beijing, and teach meditation in China. But the project uh, went a little sideways and fell through. But the, some of my some of my former students who I've taught are, are now teaching there. Mm, that's great, yeah. yeah. I had a guest that lives there and then, and um, as well as I spoke to someone else and that's how I found out about the place. Yeah. Yeah. That was the last time I was there. 78. Yeah. 1978. All right. So you learned how to do meditation. I'm assuming that during your meditation, you also learned how to pop out of your body or astral travel. Did you learn how to do that or was that just something that happened spontaneously? Yeah, the latter. Something that happens spontaneously. It's not part of the technique, but when one is letting go is what the phrase that I use now when I teach. I've been teaching meditation now for 50 years. And uh, I use the phrase now where I teach people how to let go. Let go to what? Let go of our baggage, our anxiety, our stress, but let go to our expanded sense of self, right? Let go and allow our mind to experience the vastness of our consciousness. So that's what happens if you're not controlling the mind. So the easier the technique, the faster, more effective you're going to be at getting that type of experience. So that's what happens. So that's spontaneous, to answer your question, because we are always connected to that larger sense of ourself. But we human beings do a really good job at limiting our 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 awareness and so what i teach i what i how i explained it to my students is i'm teaching you how to allow your mind to do what it actually wants to normally naturally do anyway when you just said that we're always aware of the larger part of ourselves we're connected with it we're not always aware of it but we are always connected are you referring to the higher self so I have, I used to use that phrase, uh, once I used to, in the 80s, maybe even into the 90s, I, I, I used that phrase, higher self. I stopped using that phrase about 30, 35 years ago, because when one has developed such familiarity with, one, with who one is, and that is 
who we are, then then that distinction of myself and my higher self or a lower self or a higher self or a medium self and all these gradations becomes irrelevant. It's just who I am because the seamlessness of the connection amongst all of those, we could call it disparate parts of me, is because if you think about it, how is experience? We don't experience, experience is fluid. Human experience or any kind of mental experience is fluid. It's organic. It, we, it, we don't experience things in, in, in steps or in stages. You could take a psychology class and they could talk about the ego and the intellect. And the, that's great if you're talking academically and if you're talking about, you, oh, you want to create a, you know, a feasible exam to test your students. But how, how, how is human experience? We don't experience, oh, now my ego is working. Oh, now it's my intellect. No, it's a fluid mental emotional experience that we experience to me it's the same thing with the mind well i kind of like the word and i haven't used it in a long time and i haven't thought about it in a while but i like the word complete self mm. and i feel like i don't know where it is it's some maybe somewhere non-local but somewhere on existing in other realms as the rest of us it's conscious well, I, consciously speaking yeah well what i what i say is I would reframe it into in for, for I, I wouldn't say that's incorrect. I would, but I would reframe it in in the following way. I would say that I have a <clears throat> localized waking state consciousness that applies what what I call waking state rules in my life. Okay, I'm talking to you. Mm -hmm. We're on a Zoom call and so forth. I am using my waking state rules, which is what? Focusing, directing, um, controlling my mind, where's my eyes, my languaging, my hands, all of that, okay? Driving a car down the street. We use those waking state rules. We look through the windshield, put your hand your, your hand in the steering wheel, your feet on the brake or the gas pedal and apply the appropriate pressure. We're directing our minds. That's a, that's a part of our mind. It's a very important part of our mind, uh, but it's a small part of our mind. And then there's all, to me, there's this vastness of our minds, which I teach my students how to access just easily. And by doing that, it, 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 it benefits our waking state mind, because when we start expanding our capacity mentally, our local conscious waking state part of our mind becomes clearer. And it, ha it also has foundationally, in a sense, the, the 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 foundational basis for that vastness of our mind supporting it so emotionally mentally clarity and all these different levels once we start connecting with fluidly connected connected organically just very naturally connecting with that vastness of ourself has very practical benefits now experientially the vastness of our mind is not experienced in the same way as our waking state part of our mind. And this is where words start to get a little wonky here in terms of describing this, because we don't talk about this in, in language, uh, typically. Uh, so there's not really good linguistic, you know, words to, to frame this, these concepts of, of the, of the vastness and the abstractness of that experience. But it's very, very real and it's tangible. And one, I mean, I've been meditating for 52 years now. 
Um, I, I think I've meditated, I estimated somewhere around 40,000 times I've meditated so far, so far in my life. So once you've built up, a, you don't have to meditate 40,000 times, but once you've built up a body of, um, you could call it uh, experience of connecting with what the vastness of oneself on a regular basis like that, um, the, the, the sublime, is this a word, sublimeness, <laughs> sublimity, sublimity, sublimeness, whatever, of that experience becomes very concrete and very tangible, albeit extremely abstract at the same time. Two questions I need to ask you. First, when mm. you are, as you may be saying, and as we're saying, out of your body, mm. Or do you have perception of the world out of your body? And what I mean by that is, are you able to see your body from the outside and see your environment? So, so the short answer is sometimes. So one can, one can have what people refer to. So most people, I think, when you hear them say, oh, I had an out-of-body experience, most people are thinking that it would describe it the way you just described it, okay? But I think that the, the experience of being out of one's body is much more diverse, my, my experience, is that it's much more diverse and nuanced than that. Just like life, just like waking state life is. If you would say uh, to somebody, well, geez, I've never experienced waking state life before. You know, I've always, you know, on our planet, we, 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 we don't, we don't like it. We just kind of go around and you know, we have really high insurance premiums because if you're going to go to Trader Joe's, you kind of expect to get in about 10 or 20 car accidents on the way and back. You know, it's like, but we never sleep. But, you know, uh, what's the sleeping like? And you would say, and somebody who had slept, they may say, well, you know, waking state, it's like you can actually not get into car. You can walk down the stairs and not fall. And people and, and these people from the other planet will go, oh, my God, that's bizarre. That's incredible. That's waking state. And so they have an idea that waking state is being able to walk downstairs or being able to drive a car to Trader Joe's and not get in a car accident or 20 car accidents. <clears throat> but waking state is much more nuanced than that, if you think about it, right? Same thing with out-of-body experience. There's all these gradations, nuances of the experience where, for example, one can, I would consider this an out-of-body experience. <clears throat> And I've had this experience thousands of times, you know, when where, where my mind is aware, but I'm not aware of anything specific at the time, other than I'm having awareness. I am not merged with some cosmic soup because there's still an individuality that I sometimes refer to as my essential me. It's still me. It's not me and you merged or something. It's still me, but I'm just experiencing my awareness. That's me experiencing my own mind that is the experiencer of all my experiences. To me, that's an out-of-body experience as well. People may, may not look at it that way because they typically will articulate it and look at it the way you defined it. And that is an out-of-body experience. I'm not saying <clears throat> what you're saying is incorrect. I think that's correct, but incomplete. In your opinion, then, 
and you're using the word mind and I'm not Mm -hmm. sure if we want to stick with mind or consciousness, but, um, do you feel that your consciousness is separate from your body, like two separate things, or do you feel like your body is a mock-up or a manifestation from your consciousness in this realm? Two separate things. So it might, it's two separate things in in my lexicon or the way I look at things. And I use the word mind, consciousness, soul interchangeably, but I use the word mind because I I teach in now 60 countries on Zoom. So sometimes people, very often English is their second, third, fourth language sometimes. And so I use very easy to understand English and mind to me. I don't just mean what I referred to earlier as the waking state mind. I mean, that plus, you know, the vastness of our consciousness, all of that is to me, our mind. The other reason I use the word mind is because I think it's incumbent. I think it's helpful. I think it's very practically useful for people who are into spirituality and consciousness to think of their mind in a way that's very normal and natural, not some paranormal consciousness thing that it's all integrated it's all part of who we are and i i kind of i my thing is i like to demystify the mystical because to me mystical stuff only is couched in mystery because either for two major reasons one people don't fully understand what they're talking about so they couch it in mystery or they want to kind of make it sound really special and they couch it in mystery. And I'm like, yeah, I'm the, I'm the, let's make it all real for as many people as possible, as real and regular for as many people as people as possible, because it is real and regular. That's my experience. Are you teaching TM or have you come up with your own style of meditation? No, I stopped teaching TM. I don't know what it was, 30, 35 years ago, something like that. Um, and I still say good things about TM and so forth. I'm just not into a lot of the ritual and um, just they they gotten very cultural. We were not like that when we were teaching in the 1970s when I was teaching. They, they got very much into Indian culture and so forth. And to me, I teach across all cultures. I teach uh muslims who would never have anything to do with tm quite frankly uh for cultural reasons i teach across all cultures i've removed all the cultural trappings etc from the teaching and i've made the technique even easier more flexible etc all right i think we've dived too deep into what you're up to and we need to get <laughs> we need to get a little bit of your experience to kind of mm-hmm. maybe bridge, yeah, bridge so the two together the, let's talk about the nde so what? So since we started that, and we can talk about my past life uh, memory, you know, going back six thousand years and so forth, we can touch on it some if you like. But um, my NDE happened as I, those people who are taking notes or have good memories, uh, I mentioned uh, in 1972. So I was 21 years old. I was in, going to summer school at UCSD, taking in a you know an intensive language program, and I met this girl at the registration desk, literally at the registration desk at UCSD in San Diego. Um, And we started chatting and we realized that, oh, we were in the same 
summer program together. And, and she was from Mount Holyoke. I, I was I was at Dartmouth College at the time. And uh, so here we are, both of us East Coast people. And she was from the East Coast, like I was from Boston. I was from the East Coast. We'd never, either of us had ever been to California before. It's material to the story, okay? Neither of us have been to the California before. Neither of us have ever been in the Pacific Ocean before. So we, we registered and I said, hey, we don't have class till, you know, tomorrow. So you want to go to the beach? And she said, yeah, okay, I'll meet you back here. Got your bathing suit on. So we met, we walked down and those people who know the La Jolla, UCSD La Jolla area, you can literally walk from the campus. You walk, you know, cross campus and then down this driveway and you're at, you're basically right there at Black's Beach. And uh, I was part of Torrey Pines uh, State Park, beautiful beach, 300 foot high cliffs. 300 foot high cliffs becomes material to the story in a second also. And the reason I know that 300 foot is because when I started telling this NDE story a few years ago, I looked it up to see how high the cliffs were. So we go down and there's nobody, beautiful two o'clock in the afternoon, beautiful day, nobody on the beach, nobody. I'm like, gorgeous beach day, two of us there, that's it. And there's never any lifeguards on any part of the, you know, Torrey Pines State Park beach. So it's just two of us there. We go out in the water and I we go into, I don't know, maybe hip deep water or something. And it's a hot summer day. It was June. And, and so we dunked underwater and she must have been maybe 15 feet away from me. I dunked underwater. I start seeing the 300 foot high cliffs going like this. And I, I could see them getting, I was going out so fast in the current that I could see the 300 foot high cliffs getting smaller and smaller. I got pulled up in a, in a rip current. I didn't know what a rip was. So a rip current, for those people who don't know, is it's basically a river in the ocean. And they very often come in to the shore and then they wing back out again to the into the ocean. And that's what this one did. Uh, you know, I'd been to beaches on Cape Cod, that's it. And, and, and no rip currents around there as far as I know. So, um, I got pulled out and I talked to a friend of mine a few years ago when I started telling this story and I told him the 300 foot high cliffs were about three or four inches high. Uh, how, how far out was I? And he said, you were about 1.7 miles out. So in a matter of, I don't know how many seconds, cause I was just freaking out. I wasn't counting, <laughs> but it was a matter of, you know, I don't know, a minute maybe or something. I don't know. Well, it's going out really fast. And she must've not been in the rip because she, I could just see her getting smaller and smaller. So I got pulled out and I forgot all of my Boy Scout training. I was an Eagle Scout when I was 13 years old and everything. And um, what you're supposed to do, so maybe I'll save somebody's life who's watching this. What you're supposed to do, if you get pulled out into the ocean for any reason, you never, ever swim straight back in. Because, hello, McFly, you know, you're swimming right back into what just pulled you out. You're supposed to go at a 45 degree angle to the beach. And that will increase the likelihood you're going to get out of the current that just pulled you out for whatever reason. Okay. Well, I forgot that. So I'm panicked. I'm swimming in. And of course, I'm not getting anywhere. And I'm maybe even getting pulled out farther. And I'm freaking out emotionally. And, um, and I'm getting exhausted. So I got so exhausted, I started going down. And I started going down. And it's just like in the movies, you know, you see the water you know the surface of the water's here if you've been in a pool or whatever you know and then you go down and you look at it look at it and it maybe i got i don't know three or four feet down or something 
uh, my my consciousness popped out of my body. So I was starting to have a nearing death experience. I popped out of my body, but I knew what it was because I've been meditating for two years before that. I knew exactly what was going on, and I thought, oh, and I and I and I willed my 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 mind back in. I, I, I willed my mind, I had a desire or will, I willed my mind back into my body immediately. And then by now I'm like four or five feet down, maybe six feet down, and I struggled to get to the surface of the water. If I had had what most people refer to as the classic NDE, where you're, you're, you're seeing, you know, God, Jesus, Buddha, uh, Muhammad, your dead grandmother, some angels on the other side in heaven or whatever, I probably would have been 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 feet down. And there's no way I, I would have drowned. There's no way I would have gotten to the surface. I would have drowned. Okay. But the meditation experiences for those two years, I swear, saved my life because I recognized what was going on. I willed myself back in. I struggled to the surface and I thought, take your time. That's the only thought that I remember that I had. I probably had a lot of other crazy thoughts, but I thought, <laughs> you know with a lot of four four letter words in it but i just thought you know take your time and i took my time swam back in and she told me my friend told me that it probably took me maybe an hour she didn't have a watch but she was guessing it was about an hour i crawled up on the beach i was so exhausted i just pat my feet were probably still in the water but i was enough out of the water and i passed out on the beach she said i slept for about a half hour out of 600 po or so podcasts, I've never heard a story like yours. So it, it's amazing that you had that conscious control. Yeah, yeah. And it was, and it was, it, it's interesting you use the word control because was I control? Yeah, but not control like a lot of people think. Oh, you control, I got to control my mind. No, it wasn't like that. It was just, I willed my mind back in. It was almost like a desire, which goes to many experiences that people have, have I've heard and I've helped some of my clients with, who've had NDEs experiences and they are on the other side and they say, well, you know, somebody told me I had to come back. They said, my time wasn't, you know, your, your time isn't, you know, you're not time for you to die. You got to go back and so forth. And that, and somebody I'm sure probably did tell them that, but it was their desire to come back. They had to listen. They, they made a choice. So that I think a lot of people miss that nuance there. They think that, Oh, they made me come back. No, you chose to listen to them. You could have chosen to not listen to them. That's what I mean, will or desire, choice. So I chose to go back in my body in that experience. When you were outside of your body, did you see your body floating in the water? I did not. I, I, it would happen so fast. It was like, boom, boom. It was like split second, millisecond. It was like, boom, boom, like that. Because again, I think if I had, seen my body i probably would have gone oh wow look at my body. and then mm -hmm. meanwhile i'm now i'm 10 to 12 feet down i wouldn't have gotten up right you know because i'm going down so fast every second you know i mean you know I'm, every second i'm going down i don't know what you know six eight, eight inches ten inches or something you know did you have enough time where the thoughts went through your mind something like uh-oh i'm out i better get back in i'm not yeah i'm not leaving yes yeah that was it but it was like all of that was one thought, what you mm -hmm. just said. It wasn't like a series of those thoughts. It was like that. It was like a, it was more like a knowingness that of what you described was one thought, or you might call it 
a knowingness of and you just and you just described the knowingness you know it's like that and I'm, and then i forced myself all my energy my mental emotional physical psychic energy went into my physical at that point to 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 struggle to get to the surface it was like it was interesting because you know we can talk about the disparate parts of the mind the body the emotions so forth all my energy went into my body at that moment when i chose when i said oh, you know what you just described and, and and i all my energy my life force you could say all of my life force went into the physical body to struggle to get to the surface it's the only way i can describe it it was so focused mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. yeah i'm going to kind of digress a little bit back to what yeah. we were speaking earlier i would think we all or most of us would say we have this kind of mental chatter or monkey mind, you know, that I think some people have even said we have, I don't know, thousands or a hundred thousand thoughts a day. But I, th but I think when you're meditating, you can separate from that chatter and just be still awareness. Is that correct? And if so, would you consider that pure awareness when you're still really who you are and then this chatter like something else that's part of the mind and you separate those so there's a bunch of different questions in your one question so mm -hmm. uh the short answer is can we is it possible meaning is it possible to experience more silence within our mind that's different from the usual chatter that you're talking about right yeah yes that's possible to experience that meditation is that the goal of meditation i would say i say that always say that no no to my students no that's not the goal that is a possible experience one of many possible experiences that we can have but no goal in meditation um is it a goal outside of meditation outside of one's meditation to have silence along with activity not just mental chatter but any kind of activity Yes, I would say that is a short, medium, long-term goal outside of meditation, but not a goal during meditation, because a goal during meditation is going to interfere with allowing whatever needs to happen during meditation to happen, right? Okay. Because goal is going to create an expectation, which is going to create a certain level of control, control and directing of the mind, which is going to put the mind more into what did we talk about earlier? The waking state part of the mind, which is exactly what you're saying you would like to get out of. <laughs> you can't get out of it by trying to get out of it because trying to no, trying not to try is still trying, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Right. Still, it, it limits you. Trying limits us. So what I teach is how to not try and how through a technique to allow the mind. But so yes, the short answer you could say is yes, that can be uh, possible in meditation, uh, but not the goal. That's the key. And that's the key distinction, I think, that needs to be made in all meditation from all other meditation techniques, whether my technique or other meditation techniques, to be more effective is to be less, is to, we want to limit, lessen any goal-oriented kind of thinking or experiential oh this experience is better than that experience oh you should feel you should feel relaxed in your meditation no 
You can feel relaxed in your meditation sometimes, but there should be no shoulds in the as far as technique is concerned. So are you saying in your meditation, the most important thing or what you should be doing is just letting go and whatever happens, happens, happens after that point. That's, that's the structure, but there's a specific technique. That's not the technique because that's a structural thing. Yes. That's a principle that you just described. And all of my students, if you heard, if my students heard you say that they would go, yeah, yeah, that's exactly that's Kelvin says that a million times. That's the principle. Yeah. But there's a technique because uh, we need to be reminded, we, our mind during meditation, needs to be reminded to be in this undirected state that we're talking about, this not controlling, not waking state. I just refer to it in my classes as our mind being undirected, okay? Mm -hmm. Because what does, um, here are my books, we'll talk about them later, but these are books, okay? Right. If you think the word book, what does the word book do? Book has meaning. And so what does meaning do? Meaning directs our mind. I think, oh, is it a paperback? Is it a hard book? Oh, is it Kelvin's this book? Or is this Kelvin's first book? Or, what, or what's the, you know, how big is the font in the book? You know, it's, the word book has meaning and it directs our mind in all those different ways. That's the point. So when you're in your monkey mind that you described before, the chatter of the mind chatter, whatever we call that, that's that's the that's meaning. Those thoughts have meaning, right? They have content. Sub this the substance to them. The, the, there's content. There's meaning to the thoughts. What's that doing? Directing the mind. Directing the mind. What have I said is the state that you just correctly described? The general principle of is is to be in an undirected state. So there needs to be a technique that reminds the mind to be in that undirected state. You can't just say, "Oh, just put your mind in an undirected state and letting and let go." You know, because there, there are there are gurus out there who India gurus who who teach that. That's their technique. And to me, that's a classic because um, you, you can tell I kind of think about these things. So after many decades thinking about why is why did that how did that come about. I created this, this 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 story in my mind. I said, probably what happened is some seeker from, let's make believe, from the United States or from any country, went, traveled to India, and, they, and, they, and, they, and he found this Indian guru sitting under the proverbial banyan tree, you know, whatever. And, and, and he or she is sitting there, and they say, oh, guru, uh, what, what's, what's meditation like? He said, well, I closed my eyes, and I just let go. And I experienced the unbounded unboundedness and, and uh, of the universe and i'm so connected with all beings living not living animate inanimate uh you know things etc i'm fully connected and i'm lit up inside and so that's what the guru says to this seeker and the seeker goes oh thank you so much and the seeker goes back to los angeles where i live and he goes back to los angeles opens this, it puts a shingle up and it says in meditation school and then teaches people to sit close your eyes and just just think about the unboundedness of your mind and letting go to that and just the light in your mind. Just picture the light in your mind. And how many meditation techniques out there have you heard that are like that? There's like thousands of them. And to me, that's a description of the goal. And they've made it the means to the path to get there. And that's incorrect. It's just, it's, it'd be like saying, well, you want to be in the Super Bowl? Okay, well, just show up at this stadium 
and then put on this thing we call a football uniform with helmets and you just you know bring a football with you and show up at this stadium and you'll be in this you're going to be in the super bowl no you have you had there's all this process you got to go through and this practice and da 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 and you probably had to start playing football when you were four or five or six years old or whatever you don't just show up at the stadium that somebody just described that was a super bowl you know right it, it's 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 exactly what's generally done in so many meditation classes i know this is going to sound simple but what are the benefits then of the meditation that you teach? Yeah, so this it's huge, diff, you know, wide, wide range of benefits. So um, many of my students have high anxiety, panic attacks, so forth, depression, etc. So you got that end of one spectrum. Fear of death. I help people with overcoming the fear of death. You get those folks. Sometimes they're very anxious about that. Um, uh, and then I have people who have anxieties about other things, driving, going outside, literally walking outside, all kinds of different anxieties and so forth, death of a loved one and so forth. And then I have the other end of the spectrum is uh, people who just want to expand their consciousness from a spiritual standpoint. They want to connect more with the vastness of who they are. That's the other end of the spectrum. I have people who want to connect with their dead loved ones and it increase the probability, the likelihood that they can talk with or communicate somehow with their dead loved ones that's kind of more of that spectrum in the middle i have people who just want to be more productive um i teach athletes who want to get uh, healed faster from an injury so they get back on the playing field faster and people who just want more clarity of mind and just feel more balanced and they're kind of more in the middle so it's this huge range people who want to um improve their memory there's maybe stu students in school and so forth so I teach all age range, et cetera, huge age range. Yeah. I don't know if you can do this briefly, but how are people able to connect with their dead loved ones? Um, well, uh, again, I used to teach class workshops on doing that. I'm more, uh, I'm focused a little bit more now on teaching my meditation and then talking about my experiences in the afterlife to kind of share those with people so that it can help them open up more themselves so that I reduce their fear and increase their understanding. So that's generally my approach. Now I don't give tools to people of how to do that other than I teach them to this technique of meditation, which is the primary way for somebody to increase that probability of connecting with a dead loved one. Because if you think about it, if you're, so the psychology professor um, in the 1960s told one of my meditation students, my meditation student was a student of his at the University of Houston. And he used to use this analogy, the professor did evidently. He said, you're, you guys think your mind is like this little eight inch bucket with about 10 or 15 ping pong balls bouncing in and out. Those are your thoughts and emotions, the ping pong balls. He said, no, 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 your mind is huge. It's like the Houston Astrodome down the street that seats 89, 80, 90, or 90,000 people. You just don't know it because the rest of the Astrodome is, the lights are off and you're in there at night and you see this little desk lamp on, over, uh, over this little bucket on the 50 yard line, this little eight inch bucket. And you think that's your mind. He said, no, no, no. That was the end of his analogy. So I've expanded on his analogy, and I said, that's what I teach people to do, is how to turn the light switches on. Well, if you turn the light switches on and more of your consciousness is awakened, it's not just potential, it's actualized, usable, that means usable, 
then that's going to increase your probability connecting with the loved ones on the other side or anybody else on the other side. Because if you're just using a teeny little part of your mind, it's very weak. You know, your probabilities are very low, right? Increase your probabilities by using more of more of your mind, making that conscious. You see, this is like, for most people, their conscious mind is about like this, eight inches. Instead of eight inches, how about eight million inches? <laughs> the bucket is huge. You know, you're going to increase your probabilities. What's your opinion of guided meditations? Guided meditations are not bad. They're, they're, they're still limited because they're guided. And, you you know, obviously you're either listening to an app or somebody is guiding you through. And they can, and you can get some benefit from them. I, I'm a, I'm a, I don't know, a cup half full guy. I'm a, I'm an inclusive guy. I'm not like saying, yeah, you only can do it this way. No, but is it, is it, is it more effective? You could say in terms of if your goal is to expand the conscious capacity of the mind to allow the mind to do it in the way that it can do it by itself. Yeah. It's, it's more effective that way than guiding because guiding is still directing your mind and that's still using that eight inch plastic bucket in the psychology professor's analogy. That's still using the eight inch plastic bucket part of the mind, right? So maybe the mind expands somewhat through the guided meditation from eight inches to use his analogy from eight inches to 10 inches to 28 inches to 108 inches or whatever which is huge if you're only limited, feeling limited to the eight inches all the time, bucket, size bucket, a hundred inch, 108 inches feels huge. But would it be more effective to expand the bucket to 108 million inches, whatever that works out to? All right. Earlier, you mentioned something about 6,000 years ago of past lives or something. And I think that may include some of your experiences of possibly connecting with dead ones. Yes. So can you true. tell us about that? So, uh, again, I learned to meditate in 1970. I had my NDE in 1972. And then spontaneously in 1977, I had my first uh, past life experience. I didn't know it was a past life experience at the time. I just thought it was oh, another experience. Oh, like, oh, was I just making this up or whatever? I, I, I didn't believe in reincarnation at that time until I started having externally corroborated, uh, call it um, um, evidence or events or experiences or conversations with people that corroborated an experience that I had, then I started putting two and two together. Oh, then maybe that was a past life thing. That's how it happened for me, but completely spontaneous, never have done, still have never done a past life regression because I've had so many uh, experiences, about two dozen lifetimes stretch back um two dozen lifetimes i have memories of very varying degrees and amounts of memories of uh, i probably had thousands of lifetimes but i've had i don't know a, a two dozen uh lifetimes of memories going back six thousand years that was the first one in 1977 1986 i spontaneously opened up to communicating with the other side again completely no didn't take a workshop or anything i just was sitting there minding my own business sitting in my condo in boston i just um yeah, I'd, I'd finished law school a couple few years earlier, so I was sitting there, I was, I was working at a firm and so forth, and uh, <clears throat> my dog and my cat were sleeping, and me, and I was meditating, and then just boom, 
started getting a download from the other side. It's completely spontaneous. Thought I'd watched too many Star Trek movies, uh, whatever. Uh, Captain Kirk and Spock, you know, had infiltrated my mind somehow, <laughs> whatever. I thought, what? And, and I thought I was making it up. And then I started, with that experience, what happened was I, uh, I, I flew from Boston to LA to visit a buddy of mine, Steve, out here in LA, where I live now. And and somebody had said, well, you got these weird things happening to you. Go check out these three books. And so the, I had the title of three books. And do, you ever heard of the Bodhi Tree Bookstore in uh, LA? It's a, it be a famous bookstore. So B-O-D-H-I, Bodhi Tree, as in the tree under which, you know, Buddha supposedly, you know, was sitting when he got you know, had his amazing experiences and all that. Okay. So it was in a house, though. It's unfortunately, I, I, I five, six years ago, it, it closed up. Um, but it'd been there since the 60s, this, 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 this bookstore, uh, all spiritual consciousness type of, you know, you know, books. Um, so I went there for the first time by myself, I walk in and I, and I wound my way through the, what used to be the dining room. Now it's all books. Back into the what used to be the kitchen in the house. Now it's all books. And I just randomly, I went like this. I just pulled a book off the shelf like that. And I just random, like not one of the books I was looking for uh, on my list. I just pulled a book off and I went like this. And I started reading. I don't know what page, 37 or something like that. I started reading stuff that that I had gotten downloaded from some beings on the other side about two weeks earlier. And I went, whoa, got this rush and everything. So that's that, you know. Um, and then what, as I said, about 10 years earlier is when my my past life stuff opened up. And one of the experiences, <clears throat> so one of my early experiences was, was memory, remembering I was a slave, a Carthaginian slave. Uh, um, I talk about it in my in my first book, uh, overcoming the fear of death. I, I talk about that one because <clears throat> it was the one experience. Now I've had many experiences, but it was one of my very early experiences um, that helped me through very difficult times in this lifetime as Kelvin Chin. So I always say, who cares about past lives? It, it's this cocktail party talk. I, I always look at things from a practical standpoint. What can I use from them? that informs me more about who I am still now and then uh, that can inform me and help me in my life today. So in that Carthaginian slave uh, memory, I, I saw myself almost dying on a piece of wreckage. And I thought it was the ocean at the time because I couldn't see land. I later figured out that it was the Mediterranean Sea, but you know, it was, I was, it's big. <laughs> Those of you who don't know, it's it's a huge sea. So in the middle of it, it feels like you're in the ocean. So, and I was on a piece of wreckage and I was roasting in the sun and I was almost dead. I could feel I I, I don't know how many days I'd been out there lying on this piece of holding on this piece of wreckage, floating in the on the on the on the Mediterranean, but uh days probably. I got no food, no water. And no, hardly any clothing, you know, just, you know, I was, and um, I willed myself to stay alive. That's the bottom line in that experience. That's the main takeaway is the power of my mind. So this goes to the drowning experience too, is that it informed, this happened after my drowning experience, okay? <clears throat> this was 1978-ish, something like that. Um, in in a, in 
uh, I've used that today to help me through very difficult times when I've gotten laid off when I was 50 years old and I got laid off again when I was, I don't know what, 55. I, I don't know the exact years, but whatever. I've been laid off, you know, five times since I was 50 years old. You know, now I do this work that I do now as we're talking about full time for the last eight, 10 years, but it was very difficult raising a small, a family with small children and so forth. I drew on that strength that I knew that I have had in myself for thousands of years and applied it in 21st century Kelvin Chin lifetime. You mentioned you got information from beings on the other side and you use the word beings, which to me suggests it could be some type of non-human intelligence. Can That's you, right. Can you explain any more about those beings? Sure. So the first beings that came to me were, in, were what I would refer to as, an, and they refer to as angelic. So what, what I refer to as angelic, because you could, some people use in, angelic in a very, very broad sense. It could be any being on the other side. In other words, your dead grandmother, you could consider an angel because she's energetic and all the beings on the other side are energetic. Dead human beings are energetic. But I refer to the the, these beings as angels who have never been incarnate in physical form, in physical biological form. So that's how I use it, just to define terms. Um, and th those beings came to me initially in 1986. Um, <clears throat> and it was, a, a, it was mostly Michael, Archangel Michael. So Gabriel, Uriel, Raphael. Mostly Michael, 80%. I wasn't keeping track. But this went on for about a year and a half, almost every time I closed my eyes, okay? Um, it's 80% Michael and, and you know, um, you know, 10% Gabriel and maybe Uriel, Uriel and Raphael, 5% each, something like that. And every time they would come, my, my, my one and a half bedroom condo in a Victorian house in Boston would be like full. It was like, I couldn't see them, but I could feel the energy. It was just like full of angelic energy like thousands of them all wanting to hear what michael would say. what's kelvin saying you know, what's that like? i could almost see them peering around like if, if they were if they had to look around physical things they didn't have to look around physical things of course but you know it was like that for about a year and a half and i really questioned i had i went through an identity crisis at the time and i really mean that i, I was like am i making this stuff up am i am i losing my mind what's what's going on here this is crazy stuff you know and i was getting all this information i would get information about other people some people i knew some people i didn't know um i actually did readings for about uh 6 or 8 months for with people uh for fee for a small fee and then it's like then I stopped doing it because I, I, I'm into empowering people to do things themselves. So I didn't want to just kind of be the answer man for people in that way. So, um, and then uh, it was other beings, beings who I knew, be, be, beings who I, who spiritual teachers who I've had and so forth. So this has continued to present day um, into now with um, spiritual teachers who I've, who've been spiritual teachers of mine over the last, several thousand years at different times um, who are no longer in physical biological form. So all that's huge range. All right. Well, I'm going to go a little Star Trek on you. Are there yeah. other beings on the other side that may be either from other planets or people would 
consider extraterrestrials? Uh, short answer is yes, you're looking at one of them, but it, but not on the other side. I'm, I'm on this side, but I mean, I say that jokingly, but seriously, I mean, I, I, um, I, I have a memory of being, it seems, uh, having a lifetime on another planet as well. Uh, most of my lifetimes that I remember anyway are on here on Earth. Um, but the short answer to your question is yes. Yeah. Why do you think we keep reincarnating over and over again? Oh, I, th I think it's very simple. I don't think it's complicated. I, I, and it's not the reason that I think most people think. Most people think, I think this is incorrect. Most people think it's, oh, you got to come back and you got to learn lessons. It's like as if somebody is forcing you to do it or it's part of some structure, some general universal principle that everybody has to be reincarnated. My experience, <clears throat> my experience over the last 6,000 years anyway, is that's not the case. It's a choice. I choose to come back. We all choose to come back. Or we don't choose to come back. And you can stay on the other side as long as you want. I stayed on the other side for hundreds of years in between lifetimes, sometimes maybe even thousands of years. Um, and in my last lifetime between this one as Kelvin Chin and my last lifetime as, uh, as a World War II fighter pilot, I was blonde, blue eyes, lived in San Diego, and I flew uh, off aircraft carriers in the South Pacific in World War II. That one, I died in around 1942, and I was I was on the other side for about eight Earth years. And I say Earth years because time is experienced differently on the other side. But so um, we come back because we want to, for whatever reason. Now, could we want to come back in order to complete something and, and or learn lessons, complete a relationship or create a new relationship with people who we just started and got prematurely ended and so forth in a previous lifetime? Sure, we could choose to do that. We can choose to come back and fix things. We can choose to come back and learn lessons. I choose to learn lessons from what I do because that's how I'm wired. But not everybody chooses that because if you look around, people who think that that's the case, then they may they may say, "Well, Kelvin, but their soul, their their conscious, their larger sense self self knows that they're here to learn." Eh. It. it they're not going to learn lessons unless their conscious self is paying attention, learning the lessons. All right. It's not, there's not like some other part of us is learning lessons by stupid stuff that the conscious choice, stupid, con stupid choices or, or, or cruel choices or, or dumb choices that the conscious mind is making. Right. So as I say, our mind is fluid. It's all connected. It's not two minds working at one, one lifetime here. So it's not always the case. Most people, I think, are here because for other reasons than just learning lessons. Maybe they miss the soft serve ice cream. Maybe they miss the beer. Maybe they miss the sex. They missed a lot. Of, what do most people, what drives most people's lives? If you look around, the 8 billion people, not the people in these spiritual groups. I'm talking 8 billion Joe Blows and Josephine Smiths out there. You know, just regular people, in other words. It's sex, physical stimulation, drugs, alcohol. Um, it's um, having fun, you know, however people define having fun. Eating, oh, eating is a big thing for a lot of people. Uh, uh, those are kind of the bait. And, and unfortunately, for a lot of people, it's fighting, too. It's fighting and killing 
unfortunately, you know, if we didn't have laws against it, you know, those are kind of the driving forces for most people. I think that those are the driving forces behind many people's choices to come back, to be honest. It's, I don't think it's much more complicated than that. Um, so this is why I do what I do is to try to wake people, uh, you know, give people who are more awake uh, an opportunity to think about their choices and perhaps to make better, more healthy, uh, less cruel and hurtful choices. Yeah. That's why I do what I do. Do you believe in God? And if so, have you ever experienced God? And also, while we're on the topic, how does God fit into all of this? Okay. Well, that covers a lot of ground. Okay, so <laughs> I'll give you some short answers, and you can ask me follow-up questions, okay? So, um, do I believe in God? Uh, let me say this. I've had many conversations with Jehovah. Now, Jehovah, or Allah, Yahweh, by many different names, is viewed by many people as capital G God. Jehovah has told me and others, um, I'm not the only one he said this to, that he does not view himself as God. As far as we know, Jehovah has never incarnated in physical form before, but Jehovah is a personality. Is he a little bit of a different personality than you and <laughs> than you and I are? Yeah, but is he very powerful, et cetera, et cetera? Yes, very wise, very loving, and all of that. Yes. Does he view himself as omniscient and omnipotent? No. Okay, that's that's what I mean, capital G. That's because I think that's the way most people view capital G God, right? Mm -hmm. So he would say that, in fact, no one appears to be able to know everything or to control everything because he would say that free will exists. Free will exists means personal choice, that anybody can choose to do anything, including him, me, you, everybody, any, any, any conscious conscious sentient being can choose to do whatever and that means that nobody can control everything and nothing is predestined uh preordained etc 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 so um but again i understand that doesn't fit with a lot of people's religious uh beliefs and i'm not here to step on people's toes so people can all of my students have all different religious beliefs and they may be very different from mine and i'll and and i'm i i respect and embrace that but you asked me a question. So um, so I don't see a need for a creator because my experience, at least over the last 6,000 years of memories, and my logic tells me that we are eternal, that our souls are eternal, that our individual souls are eternal. Now, I've never been created, not destroyed. First law of thermodynamics. Energy cannot be created nor destroyed. And our souls, I think, are energy and our individual energies that have never been created and therefore never can be destroyed. So there, there's no need for a creator. I guess you're saying that you don't feel like there's some type of source of creation. So here's the thing. So it depends what you mean by source. So if people mean that there was a source 
that somebody created or some beings, who knows what, created human beings. Yes, that could be. But I have been an eagle, I know, before. And I have been, I don't know what else before, before I may, may have been human or an animal, right? My soul is what I'm talking about, what I call the essential me-ness of, of me. Not the Kelvin, not Kelvin Chin, but the essential me, <clears throat> that's Kelvin Chin, that was a Carthaginian slave, 330 right. BC, blah, 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 all that, okay? That that, that so yeah, we could, somebody may have created human beings. What I'm trying to ask is, do you think there's a source of everything, of yeah, all no. creation? No, I think that, I think my sense is that it's more like, uh, you know, like the, um, I just saw a movie, uh, a really good movie on Netflix uh, called The Outfit, if anybody wants to check it out. It's a very cool, very, very cool movie. But in the scene, there's the, um, the tailor's assistant collects snowball you know those snowballs uh you know like you, 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 there's a scene in this plastic ball and it's full of a snow globe yeah snow globe thank you yeah mm -hmm. and you shake it and, and you have all those little white flakes that probably are made of plastic or whatever kind of go around and it looks like snow mm -hmm. i think i think it's more like it's like we're in this huge like the universe is as if like a huge snow globe and and there's like trillions and trillions of those little snowflakes and we're like the snowflakes and you can and, and you get shake it shake it up and maybe some of the planets are snowflakes too i mean you know everything that's kind of part of the change we'll call it the 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 the, the um within the field of change is like that that's how i view it. it it it's a little complicated but you know i don't think that there is a need for a creator if there's no creation no, no beginning and no end. And so here's, here's, a, here's a common point of confusion and conflation. You'll hear spiritual teachers talk about a beginning and it will extend for eternity. That makes no logical sense. You cannot have the beginning of an eternal anything. Eternal means no beginning, no end. Okay. So whenever you hear people say that, you kind of go, eh, okay. <laughs> Is karma real? And if so, do we have a karmic account? So again, the, the, it depends what you mean by karma. So I'm going to define terms here, okay? So karma, the way it's strictly defined in Sanskrit, simply means action. And so if you're looking at karma from a standpoint of do actions have consequences? Yes, they do have consequences. If we're looking at it from a standpoint of an accounting, some cosmic accounting system that exists somewhere in the universe that keeps track of people's good deeds and bad deeds like Santa Claus does, no, there is no cosmic Santa Claus accounting system that's keeping track, all right? So not karma in the way that many people think. It's been distorted over the millennia. The notion of one of the things I'm uh, this talked about, you and I are going to talk about this at the end, but I'll just weave it in here right now. We can talk more about it later. This 30th November talk that was given in 2014, 30th November, was one of the things was about this notion of karma. One of the many topics that was discussed by members of the movement 
that includes Jehovah, Jesus, John the Baptist, Shankara, who used to be Vyasa. Vyasa wrote the Mahabharata. The Bhagavad Gita is part of the Mahabharata. Those are all source uh, scriptures of the Hindu and Buddhist uh, religious in religions institutions. Okay, um, the people who wrote those the original uh, documents and so forth, or came up with the original teachings, were part of this group that gave a download of spirituality on planet Earth over the last 10,000 years. One of the things they talked about was this idea of karma. And they came up with this idea of karma, why? About 10,007 to 10,000 years ago. Um, they came up with this idea of karma to start and sending prophets down, teachers, we'll call them, seed people, so to speak, you know, seeding the human human race with this idea of karma, that there's consequences to your actions because people were doing a lot of killing, just a lot of killing. It was like killing and sacrificing babies and women to the gods. Why babies and women? Because they're weaker than the men. You know, a lot of that going on. So these beings on the other side I just named, and another 15 or 20 of them, uh, they, yeah, you know, how can we start moving humanity in a little bit more of a positive, life-affirming instead of life killing life-threatening direction and so they came up with this idea of karma consequences so it started out as the idea of consequences there are consequences to your actions over the millennia it became this accounting system thing that now many people think of and then you and, and it's and it's got completely distorted into this source of suffering for people who feel like they have a mountain of bad stuff that they've done and the good stuff they've done has not outweighed the bad stuff. And it's like in this accounting system distortion. And they feel completely, they, they're completely um, lost at what to do and completely discouraged from living life. That's not what the idea was meant to be seven to 10,000 years ago. It's the opposite. Can you just give us some basic tips to live better and happier lives? Yeah. So to live a better, happier life, I think we need to find some way of turning within and connecting with ourselves. Some way. And for some people, you know, I've I've given lectures and so forth in the in the in the Bible belt, and I'll tell them, you know, for some of you, it's prayer. But I'm I'm not defining prayer as begging for something from God. Okay. I'm talking about turning within and connecting with oneself in a way that's different from just closing your eyes and thinking about your problems. All right. So find some way to connect in that way. The other thing is pay attention. Pay attention to the consequences of one's actions. You don't have to call it karma, but pay attention. You do this, it has a certain result. Does it give you the desired result? Don't be so uh, ping pong ballish, just getting thrown around like a ping pong ball, you know, like getting thrown like a football around in life. Pay attention and, and pay attention to one's actions and one's consequences, but also pay attention to what? To one's emotional patterns. Because our emotional patterns, what drives us? Why do I really like this and not like that? Why do I, 
why am I so impatient in this in these certain situations? Or why, why, you know, why do I behave a certain way with certain people and so forth and so on? Self-reflect, look at those emotional patterns, because those emotional patterns, if we can unlock the negative emotional patterns and realign them with, with, with actions and then consequences and results that are more productive and give us more happiness, that's going to, you know, give us that level of contentment that you're that you're seeking, right? And our emotional patterns are our drivers because they're the the default in a sense. You know, it's not, it, it, it it's the stuff that drives us without us thinking about it. You know, it's just like, oh, I don't know why I did that. Okay, now later, <laughs> think about it. You can't think about it while you're in the middle of it because in the middle of it, that's what it, it's an emotional pattern. It just drives us. Okay, but reflect on it later. Look at those emotional patterns. These emotional patterns very often are not just from this lifetime. The deep emotional patterns, the stuff that makes you scratch your head, you go, huh? Huh? How come? That's It's usually really old stuff. And you don't have to do past life regression. You don't have to have past life memories like I do in order to open that stuff up. Just look at your emotional patterns. Do you think beings from the other side will send down new teachers and or prophets, however you want to label them, to kind of take humanity to the next level? Yeah, the short answer is yes, and I'm going to give you an understanding of what type and what type to look out for in one's current lifetime and in one's future lifetimes, if you remember what I'm going to say to you now in a future lifetime. Hopefully, I'm planting seeds. I'm I'm a seed planter. That's the way I look at what I do. I plant seeds, and hopefully they germinate. And my time frame is a half a million to a million years. Over the next half a million to a million years. That's the that's my time frame. Okay? Yeah, I'm helping people immediately now in this lifetime. But here's the thing. Um, the guru the relationship is old. It's now defunct. It's considered defunct by these, by these, we'll call them uh. I'll refer to them as senior spiritual leaders that most people recognize names of. Okay. Jehovah, Jesus, Shankara, Vyasa. You can look up Shankara and Vyasa, people who don't know who they are. You can Wikipedia them. You'll see who they are. Um, Muhammad, etc. Yogananda, Maharishi, John the Baptist, etc. Maharishi was John the Baptist and Elijah before that, amongst other lifetimes. So they are saying the guru relationship is is old stuff. So so what's the master disciple relationship mean for those people who don't know? Master disciple relationship or the guru relationship, same thing, means the master or the guru tells the disciple or the student what to do. And the disciple, the student does it what does not question. Does never questions. Does whatever the master or the guru tells the student to do. Why? Because in that relationship, the belief system is the guru knows best, knows and, and, and arguably is perfect, is enlightened. It is now understood and wants to be understood on this side of the veil. From the other side of the veil, those folks that I just mentioned, that there is no such thing as enlightenment in terms of per state of static perfection. There's always continual growth for eternity, that nobody merges into some cosmic soup once they reach a certain level, that there are no levels, in fact, unless you create levels. 
just like you could create levels on this side, level like high school, college, university, PhD. Those are levels. You can create those. But there's no structural level on Earth, just like there's no structural level on the other side. So this whole guru, master, disciple, enlightenment thing, they, they, they say that's old thinking. And they want people to understand that now, that that was, um, that, that, that that's no longer the thinking going forward. That in fact, in, instead, they want people to think in the way that I described earlier, kind of in my own words, think more clearly about things, turn within, think about things, assess things and so forth, understand things more clearly, um, the whys, the hows and the wherefores of why we do things. Um, and to view them, who we viewed as God or gods in different ways, different traditions have viewed them in different ways, Buddha and so forth has been viewed in different ways, um, as our friends, as our friends, as more as our peers. They're not our literal peers, we understand that, but figuratively view them more as our peers and engage with them in that more peer relationship kind of way. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. I'm not sure if I answered everything. Well, I think you did, but, and I mean, to me, the point is, is that turning within and figuring things out and learning for ourselves, but will there be some type of, you're teaching that, but will there be somebody that's going to teach that to the masses? Right. And there'll be, and there'll be, oh, this is the end part that I missed, uh, didn't get to. So yeah, there, there, there are, some of them are planning to come back, but their admonition to everybody, the, the, the cautionary note to everybody is, if you're looking for a guru relationship in a future lifetime, it's not going to be one of us. That's their message to us. It's not going to be one of us. It's going to be a wannabe. It's not going to be, you're not going to get the first string. You're going to get the third and fourth stringers. <laughs> okay on the teams, right? So, because those are the ones who what? Still want to be adored. They still want to be revered. They still want to be worshiped. And will there still be worshipers in future life, you know, in in a, in a hundred years and 500 years and a thousand years from now, still, yes, there'll be plenty of people who will want to worship those people. And it's okay. And they're not saying, everybody's free will okay they, they they fully understand that but they're just it's a cautionary note that understand it's not going to be jesus it's not going to be john the baptist it's not going to be shankara vyasa or any of the others who are you know buddha yogananda etc it's not going to be those that those level that level of spiritual teachers muhammad etc it's going to be others who want to be adored and these the these teachers who are saying this now um are saying it because they see it's for the betterment of humanity for humanity to start understanding better why it makes certain choices going forward that it's actually going to be helpful instead of putting a band-aid on something heal and move forward Another way of saying the same thing that we were just saying is divinity. The idea of divinity, they want to be shelved, of looking at them, any of them, 
as divine because it creates this separation between us and them. And what they're saying is that we are more like you than you have ever realized and or, or that you have ever allowed us to be. And yes, we, this is them talking now, we have contributed to that, that perception of us. But we are now saying no to that, that we do not need that, that you should, and it's even better for you to view us more as your peers. There's more of a, we call it a democracy, an eternal democracy, we call it, of, 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 of beings. That doesn't mean everybody's the same. That means that everybody has the same rights. That's why democracy, that word democracy is being used, okay? So anybody has the same rights. How, how one exercises those, it's unique to each individual. And how self-aware of an individual, that's unique to each individual. And there's no way of measuring that. You know, everybody's different. Uh, but they want, they're, they're wanting to now open things up. That was what this marker, you could call it a milestone in human history that occurred in 2014, that, you know, it's coming up on the eighth year anniversary and 30th November, 2022. Um, that was a marker eight years ago that they wanted to kind of, you know, put down, you know, put the post in the ground with this signpost saying, okay, from this point forward, we're letting you know that we're encouraging everybody to um, to um, to think on their own and question everything and figure things out themselves. This is what I say. I've been saying in my classes for a long time, in very in my own way, of course. Um, but um, I, 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 that's why I work across so many cultures and so many different belief systems. And, and, and I'm not here to change people's beliefs. I'm here to help people think more clearly, uh, give them perceptions and perspectives and approaches to think about things that may be different from what they've been, how they've been thinking before. And that, but they have to decide each of, each of the people who was ever in any of my audiences, whether my audience is two people or it's 2000 people, it's like they have to decide on their own what fits and what doesn't fit with them. And to me, that is spirituality. That is what eternal growth is all about. It's individual, it's personal, it's unique. Yes, we can go and we should go and we get encouragement and insight from different teachers and guides and coaches and counselors and whatever we want to call them. That's fine. But we need to, need to synthesize that and decide what works and take that and, dis, and, and either shelve or even discard the rest. It doesn't matter. But that's to me, that is what spiritual growth is. It's not following what somebody else or just blindly believing what somebody else says. That's, that's just memorizing. That's like being in class, you know, you memorized all the problems, you memorized the answer, but you have no idea what you just studied. What information do you have about what we do on the other side in between lives? Oh. Like life reviews, do we know everything about all of our lives and do we make the decision to come back and forget everything? 
et cetera? So, so you got about half a dozen questions in there. Okay, so, so we continue. <laughs> our mind continues. Our consciousness continues. So we remember who we are. Our personality, I say, continues. I call it personality, my traits and so forth. Um, if I saw you on the other side, Jeff, I'd recognize who you are. You wouldn't have to show me even your energetic face that I recognize now. Uh, no, no, you, I, I would just recognize your energy now, okay? Right? Because that's the experiences I have with, sometimes people will visit me from the other side and they'll show me an energetic view of, like Maharishi, when he was in his 50s, in the 1970s when I knew him, but I didn't see him after that. I haven't seen, and he died in 2008. I see him, but now he comes and I, I recognize his energy. I just feel his, I know, I know who it is. Um, it's like that. And we can do whatever we want on the other side. It's energetic. You can travel at it. We don't know how travel how fast, but really fast. Can you travel at the speed of light? I don't know. Maybe you can only go half of the speed of light. But the speed of light is 700 million miles per hour on Earth, or, in the, or not on Earth, but in the universe and on Earth, in our known universe here on this side. So the other side, we're energy. Well, we can travel very fast, okay? And so the experience of time is different. So when you hear people say, oh, time doesn't exist on the other side, they don't know what they're talking about because time exists on the other side. It just exists. The experience is different. Time is a measurement of change. Does change exist on the other side? Yes. You don't merge into some cosmic soup. Who are you talking to? Are there beings on the other side? They have, there's individual beings. There's change by definition. So you can measure that. Now, the experience of time on the other side is very different from here. But that doesn't mean time itself doesn't exist. It's just subjectively different. But um, what else did you ask? Coming back, you can come back, as we said earlier, for whatever reason you want to, you know? And you can come back as many times or as few few times as you want. Um, what else did you ask in there? Well, are there any standard things like when you get over there, you have a life review? review oh, life review. Did, did here. Yeah. Right, the life review thing. So can you have a life review? Yes. Do you have to have a life review? No. Not everybody has a life review. So when people say, oh, you go over there and the first thing you have is a life review. Well, that may happen for a lot of people, but not necessarily everybody. Okay. I've seen seen it happen with not everybody. And so it doesn't mean that any. it's not a good or a bad thing. Life review is, by the way, just to get this punishment thing out of the way, there's no punishment on the other side. There's no structural punishment. So the life review is not a punishment thing. It's it's a, it's an interesting, it could be a fun thing. It could be a learning thing for some people just to kind of flip through really fast, you know, energetically, oh, some highlights and so forth of relationships or events or incidents in their life, et cetera. That's, you know, what people generally refer to as a life review. So it can happen. Yeah. And it may happen with, with, with a bunch of people and it may not happen with another bunch of people. So there's no one, the thing is, there's no one procedure that everybody goes through. People will say, well, you have to go through this level and that level and that level. <laughs> no, you you just, you could choose to do that. But those of us who are not into levels, we don't do levels on the other side. That's <laughs> mm -hmm. not what you do. Now about past lives, uh, you know, the people who are into levels will probably end up doing levels on the other side. And then they come back and they do, oh, there's levels. And they say, well, there's levels for you. There's not structural levels. That's what I mean. It's just like here. There's not structural levels. You go to earth, you have to be in a level. No, you can choose to be in levels, all kinds of different levels on planet earth. But you know, it's not structurally here, just in the same way it's not structurally there. What about um, <clears throat> knowing your past lives? 
not everybody know all of a sudden remembers their past lives on the other side. Some people may. Um, Maharishi, for example, um, his his teacher opened him up to his memories of his past life once he died on the other side. Okay, so you so somebody may help you open up. Some people will spontaneously. I don't know why, but I've just spontaneously. I think I know why, but I'll, I have a conjecture about why I opened up to my past lives on this side, and some people do. I think it's simply because we've been through so many lifetimes being very self-aware and conscious that we're not afraid of death anymore. You know, it's not a scary thing. And so it, I think fear is a big blockage to people opening up and remembering, which is understandable. And I don't think it's a good thing necessarily. It's not a necessarily a good thing for everybody to remember all their past lives. I've seen situations where people will get traumatized by certain memories. So it's not, it, 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 we have natural built-in self-regulatory mechanisms, I think, in our consciousness. And so I'm not a believer in people just going out doing every past life regression person, uh, regressionist session with with somebody that they can find just to uncover all their past lives it it it, it, it can be harmful too if you don't have uh you know a good filter on the in the on the a past life regression person who you're going to see so i think it's more effective and, and equally as, as effective as looking at in looking at our emotional patterns but not but the other question you said do we know everything and all of a sudden we're on the other side no no, oh, you don't become enlightened. You don't become like a, all of a sudden. Oh, you know, I had a ninety IQ when I was on planet Earth, and all of a sudden I'm like, a, I got a hundred and eighty-five IQ on the other side. No, it's like no, it's just you, you don't you don't all of a sudden know how to you know win win Wimbledon just because you're uh, you're an energy body now. So now, do we have a different perspective when we? physically, biologically die? Absolutely. Do we feel less stressed? Yes. We don't have to eat. We don't have to worry about health issues, physical dying issues. We don't have to have a roof overhead. Therefore, we don't have to work. It's much easier on the other side, okay? And I think that's one of the reasons to answer one of your earlier questions, why a lot of people come back. If you're on vacation, which is what it's like on the other side, imagine you're on vacation for a thousand years, two thousand years. Some people go nuts on vacation on Earth in Earth years after a week or two. You know, I gotta get back to work. You know, I've had it with sitting on the beach and just rolling around playing golf and just, you know, drinking mint juleps and I'm on my balcony and reading the, read my books. You know, I've read ten books on vacation. Whatever. I don't know. I'm just exaggerating. But you know, so that could be a reason why people come back too, to engage in physical reality in a way that's not the same on the other side. Well, I've done about 400 near-death experience interviews, and obviously not one is exactly like the other. And I've kind of categorized them into about four or five different patterns. And I think what you've explained explains why they're all so different. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, we are unique minds. There's not a structural thing that's going on that's organizing everything on the other side, like people will come back and say from some NDE sometimes, because that was their experience. Here's the thing. Here's another perspective on it. Okay. I've probably been back and forth and, you know, and communicated, I don't know, a thousand times, let's just say. I don't know how many times. I haven't counted. Okay. But let's say conservatively 
four four to a, 400 to a thousand times okay <laughs> we'll give a range okay conservative give, give a low conservative number and who knows what the high number is doesn't matter more than once or twice is my point most people how many ndes do they have and they come back and, and they and they tell their experience here's what it's like on the other side it maybe i i know some i have had some students who've been traumatized with four ndes four or five NDEs. And I, I know some people who have had that many NDEs, but still four, most people have just one. Okay. But even four or five, if you, if that's still a tiny number to of, of data to compare to, to then draw these broad, wide sweeping conclusions that this is what it's like on the other side. The correct, accurate statement would be, this was what it was like for me on the other side. That would be completely accurate. And the person would be, I would embrace them. Whenever I hear people say, this is what it's like, implying that it's like this, going to be like this for you, that's what I get a little uncomfortable because there is no one way. It's just like saying, here's what it's like to live on planet Earth. You go to McDonald's. No, really? I mean, I haven't been to a McDonald's in decades myself personally. And last I check, I'm living on planet Earth. Okay. So it's like for, for many people, that would capture their life on planet Earth. They at least go there once a week, most people, I would say. <laughs> and it's not just in America anymore. We know it's worldwide. <laughs> Kelvin, due to time, I need to switch gears with you. You showed yes. us your books. What are the yeah. titles and, and where do we find them? Sure. So there's Overcoming the Fear of Death, easy to remember. And the subtitle that you may or may not be able to read is Through Each of the Four Main Belief Systems. That means these belief systems that I'm referring to there are non-religious, non-religious belief systems. So um, they're not uh, you know, the normal belief systems that most people think of. They are the underlying belief systems underneath all the religious and cultural belief systems about death and dying that exist out there, okay? So this is a non-religious approach to helping people think about death and dying. There's NDE section in here and so forth for those who are interested in NDEs. There's a reincarnation section, and there's a how to deal with the fear part of it section in here too. There's a, and a lot of stories, mostly not stories about me, Mostly, I wanted this book to be about not me. I have a, a, a book about me that I'm writing right now. It's going to be my third book. <laughs> but uh, second book is um, Marcus Aurelius Updated, 21st Century Meditations on Living Life. So what this book is, um, is a collection of 67 essays that I've written on all sorts of subjects. Uh, there's different... Um, they're short, page, two pages, three pages. Uh, emotions, there's a chapter on emotions, there's a chapter on life principles, there's a chapter on meditation, and there's a long, long, the longest chapter is on the spiritual. So all kinds of subjects, love, nuances of forgiveness, friendship, ego, balance, self-interest versus self-centeredness, um, uh, attachment and illusion, spiritual materialism, free will, destiny, was it meant to be, dualism versus non-dualism, uh, 
unbundling and enlightenment online dating with angels <laughs> that's a god a, 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 you know a title catcher right god pettiness fear and punishment um so that that those are some of the essays 67 essays in this very easy to read really it's a it's like a um a reference book really and so people i tell people just you don't read it cover to cover you read it by looking at the table of contents and which subject jumps out at you and you read that before you go to bed at night uh that 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 kind of thing um they're available on amazon and all the online booksellers bronze and noble you name it uh, they all have it this one uh there's an audiobook i do the narration of the audiobook and there's an ebook on ebook version of both books this one is just an ebook in the uh, paperback. If people want to find out about your meditation classes, do they do that on your website? Yes, uh, probably best to go to my website. Uh, uh, I have four websites. The easiest one to remember is just my name, kelvinchin.org. They're on all nonprofits, so .org. Uh, Kelvin Chin, my name, .org. That one will get you to the, all the other websites as well. And on the footer on every page of every website are hot links to the other three. And there's a link there also to my YouTube channel on the bottom of every page of my website. So that's the easiest way to reach me. All right. What else you got going on that you want us to know about? Yeah, I, I briefly alluded to um, this 30th November talk that happened in 2014 that uh, my good friend George Hammond gave. Um, he got a download from all those uh, beings on the other side that I mentioned, Jehovah, Jesus, John the Baptist. Shankara, who used to be Vyasa in a previous lifetime, and about 15 to 20 others. And so I organized that event in 2014. I am going to run a Q&A. I'm going to facilitate and do and answer questions about that talk that happened eight years ago on the eighth year anniversary of it, 30th November next month. So um, people should, if they're interested, just go to my website or go to my YouTube channel or whatever and send me a message and I'll put you on a, on a mailing list. Uh, or you could Facebook friend me or Instagram me. Um, look my name up. It's Kelvin.h.chin on Instagram. And on um, Facebook, it's Kelvin one because somebody else, some 20 year old in Malaysia, I think <laughs> beat me to the name on Facebook. Anyway. Um, so I'm, I'm Kelvin Chin dot one. Um, so you, I encourage people to to uh, to watch that 30th November dot com video talk that George gave. It's 30thnovember.com. That's where the webs. That's the website where the where the talk is. It's a three hour talk, and it talks about the history of spirituality in the Judeo Christian, Islamic, and Vedic traditions on planet earth over the last 10,000 years. So the leaders of those traditions give a give a give a history and and in a going forward and I'm going to talk about this on 30th November this year in the Q&A that um that I'll be doing that I'll be leading. You mentioned your YouTube channel. What's the name of that and what kind of content are you posting there? Yeah, so the YouTube channel there's about 100 and 120, 150 uh, videos there. Uh, the name of my YouTube channel is Kelvin Chin Turning Within. Uh, no spaces. Kelvin Chin Turning Within is the name of the channel. 
And there are mostly videos there about me talking about the other side, the afterlife and reincarnation experiences. Um, and there are some videos there on my meditation. There's there's a couple of videos from some of my meditation classes there. They can search for, people can search for there. And there's also several videos there where I talk about some of the principles in this book, like self-acceptance. There's a, there's a video there where I talk about forgiveness and how do we marry up the idea of love and forgiveness together with somebody who seems unforgivable to us because of their bad behavior. I talk about these quandaries uh, a lot in a lot of these essays in this book and in some of the videos on my YouTube channel. Kelvin, before we finish up, can you leave us with one last positive message? I'd say that positive message is that uh, I encourage people to, as I said, turn within in whatever way and live our lives with our eyes open and don't live in fear and don't worry about, you know what FOMO is, the fear of missing out? Don't worry about that. Yes, we should engage in our lives as much and as fully as possible with our loved one and our friends to enjoy life here and now in the present. But we have eternity. So there is no fear of missing out. Enjoy as much as we can. We will always have another chance, more time. We have plenty of to learn whatever we need to learn. And my belief is that we never run out of time. Kelvin, thank you for that message. And when you get your next book out, please contact me because I would love to have you back. I will. Great, Jeff. Great right. to be with you. Thank you and have a great rest of your day. Thanks a lot. You too. Thanks for watching the Jeff Mara podcast. I really appreciate you. Another way to show support is through YouTube memberships. And if you do, there are loyalty badges and other perks depending on your level of membership. All you need to do is click the join button underneath the video to find out more. Thank you for your support.